Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at So I realize that's an older song, or at least it's been around for a little bit. It's by a guy named, originally by a guy named Chris Stapleton. I heard it for the first time this past week, and yes, it is considered a country song. So we are either progressing or regressing, depending on your perspective. But as I heard the song, a friend of mine actually sent it to me, and when I listened to it, uh, I was struck for some reason by this image of a broken halo. Obviously, it's not a new idea. It's not a new image. It's been said and used in many occasions. But in light of our topic today, which is celebrating through repentance, I think a good place for us to start is to think about the particular ways in which each one of us is broken or the ways in which we are damaged, the assumption is all of us are in some ways, or the ways in which we are flawed. Another way to think about this would be to think about the self-tendencies we have, the ways we protect, the ways we promote, the ways we orient our life and the lives of others around us. Life with God and under God, it seems to me, is about learning to gradually turn away from self and turn away from sin, this idea of repenting, and turn toward God in the details of our thoughts and will and choices and words and responses and actions. We're in week two of our celebration is not an option Eastertide series, and we're talking today about celebrating through repentance, a rather strange combination of ideas. I don't think we often think of repentance in the same sentence as celebration. Repentance has to do with facing the truth about our sin, turning away from self, turning away from sin and toward God, not exactly party hats and gut-busting laughter sort of stuff. And yet, Repentance is essential in our relationship with God, and it is essential to our formation in Christ-like character. So I want to begin in this story in Nehemiah chapter 8 that Holly just read. Nehemiah 8 is a story of individual and communal repentance that breaks out almost spontaneously when Ezra the priest reads the law of Moses 
to a huge gathering of people who, because of their recent life situation and struggles, are in a place of desperation and longing for a fresh work from God. At the end of Israel's 70-year exile in Babylon, let's just say somewhere around 500 B.C., the Israelites began returning to their land and they began returning to the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem in order to give leadership to the rebuilding of the wall around the city and to the repopulation of the city. In the beginning of chapter 8, and again, she read it. If you're looking at it, you might be able to see this, but it probably, you probably missed it. Uh, there's a lot in that. But in the beginning of chapter 8, we're told that on the first day of the seventh month, the people who were living in and near the city of Jerusalem all gathered together inside the newly rebuilt walls of their city. And the purpose of this gathering is unclear. People, scholars, don't know what it was for. They might have been celebrating the new year. They might have been celebrating the Day of Atonement. But whatever the occasion, this gathering was supposed to be a celebration. Ezra the priest stood up before the crowd, and when he began reading from the Law of Moses, everyone who was in the crowd, men, women, and children who could understand, stood up to listen to it. He read selected portions from the first five books of the Bible, and we're told, get this, he started reading at daybreak, let's say six in the morning, and he stopped at noon. And verse three says, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Now that's quite a feat, reading the Bible for five to six hours, and the crowd is attentive the whole time. Verse six says, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. As the scripture was read, something started happening in this gathering. God's word was getting past the typical defenses and hard-heartedness and over-familiarity. And it was getting past the, yeah, I've heard that one before. Something authentic was happening in the hearts of those who were in the crowd. And we know something authentic was happening in their hearts because their bodies were engaged. They lifted their hands. They shouted, Amen, Amen. They bowed with their faces in the ground. As is always the case, their bodies were the means of expressing what God was doing in and among them. Now, there were priests, we're told, who were out in the crowd, sort of wandering around, and they were explaining the things Ezra was reading in the words of the law. So they were explaining what he was saying, they were answering questions, maybe selling concessions, who knows, but they were helping people discover the goodness of God's truth. And verse 8 said, they made it clear so people understood what was being read. And then in verse 9, Nehemiah and Ezra and the priests start telling everybody in the crowd, quote, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. There's something stirring. There's something happening. And once again, their bodies displayed what the Spirit was doing in their inner being because they wept. 
See, this is an awakening that's taking place with the people of God. People are starting to face their own brokenness. God is doing something real in and among them, and he is doing it as they are gathered together under the word of God. It's a very stirring and fascinating story. And then we come to the end of it, verses 10 through 12. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. Remember, he's talking to a bunch of people who are weeping. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. This is a beautiful story of the community gathered together in God's presence, listening to his instruction and actually hearing it. They are coming under the Spirit's conviction. They are actually hearing the vision of life God sets forth. And this vision is resonating with them. And they are seeing where they are out of alignment with this vision. And there is this strange convergence all over this story between God's holiness, people's repentance, and this command to be joyous and to celebrate. The day is holy. Do not grieve. Instead, celebrate with great joy. So in thinking about celebrating through repentance, I want to talk first about this idea of showing up. After 70 years of exile in a foreign land, far away from the familiar and far away from their homes, the people are now settling into their new lives back in their beloved city. And on the first day of the seventh month, there's a sacred gathering of some kind, and they showed up for it. Thousands of them showed up. And there's an important detail at the beginning of chapter 8 of what Holly read. It says, They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. They asked him to read it. They wanted to hear God's word. So there is this hunger in them for the things of God. The struggles of the past 70 years have turned them toward God with fresh desperation. And so they show up at this gathering. Ezra reads the law. God moves in a powerful and transformative way. So repentance is turning away from self and turning away from sin and turning toward God. And I want to suggest repentance begins by showing up. Meaning, making the time and taking the risk to put ourselves in situations where the Spirit of God can speak to us and the Spirit of God can do His work in us. Showing up means putting ourselves in contexts where God can be encountered and heard and experienced. For the Israelites, it was showing up at this gathering. It was asking to hear the word of the Lord. It was listening attentively when it was read. Showing up, in other words, means being intentional. However much we can be, or however little we can be. We can say it this way. To show up means we get in the path of God's Spirit. We are purposeful about stepping into settings 
where there's an opportunity to hear from God and turn toward him. Now, obviously, God can get our attention anytime and anywhere, and we can reach out to him at any time and anywhere. But the Bible and history and experience suggests there are some proven means in which the Spirit of God will meet us and speak to us and awaken us. This rhythm we have of gathering together on Sunday is certainly one way we can show up. And that's all I'm going to say about it, because I don't want this to feel like, oh, I get it, it's a trick. You're going to get us to come more often because they came and blah, blah, blah. I'm not even going to go there. But this rhythm, well, I guess I just did go there. But this rhythm is one of the gatherings. This gathering is one of the rhythms where we believe the Spirit of God does something. The practice of engaging with the Bible during the week is another one of these practices. We read it. More importantly, we let it read us. And we think about what's there. And I can't explain this, but the Spirit does something in that process. The practice of honest conversations with others about our journey with Christ is another means of getting in the Spirit's path. Something happens when we sit with a friend and explore matters of the heart together. Something happens when we sit with a friend and talk about where the Spirit is at work in us. We ask each other the question, how is your soul? What is the Spirit teaching you? Where is He nudging you these days? Where are you cooperating with the nudge? Where are you resisting the nudge? This all may seem rather daunting, this whole idea of repentance, but it really begins by stepping in. It begins by showing up. And we need to say it. It begins by putting forth some effort. And it probably won't begin if we don't. We get in the Spirit's path. We're intentional. Secondly, as we think about repentance, I want to talk about this idea of being open. The Bible is clear. Knowing God in an authentic way requires repentance. Those two words are important. It requires Repentance. Mark 1, verse 15, Jesus says at the very beginning of his ministry, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. It is a new day. The reign of God is now available in the person of Jesus. He is God in the flesh, and he will show us what life can be like with him and under his gracious leadership. And the starting point of this new life is to in Jesus' words, repent. And we absolutely have to get this. The starting point is to start turning away from sin and turning away from self and turn toward God and confess our sin. Own our brokenness and sin and begin to pursue Him and follow Him and align with His will and with his way. See, the Bible is not bashful about telling us that left to ourselves, our hearts and minds and wills and bodies will orient towards self and towards sin. We are a world-renowned expert at doing what we want, and we don't need one bit of coaching or teaching or training 
to become this world-renowned expert because it is extraordinarily natural for us to do exactly what we want when we want it. So we will choose to go our own way and be our own God and write our own truth and interpret it our own way and construct our own path to God. And to repent means we start turning away from this self-directed life. And we turn toward God and toward the life he offers us in his kingdom. So repentance always involves a decision to move toward God and deal on his terms. But I want us to camp for a minute on the fact that repentance is not a one-time decision. It is, in fact, an ongoing decision. I can even say a daily decision. Throughout our lives, we are discovering new features in our life with God and in our journey with God. We are learning finer details of the kingdom way. And so repentance is an ongoing process of turning away from self and turning toward God. We don't just do this once. Now, this may be so obvious, we may have missed it, but the people, the crowd in Nehemiah chapter 8, are the people of God. The ones having an awakening, the ones who are under the conviction of the Word of God, are the people of God. These are not pagan barbarians. These are the Israelites. They have faith. For all of their lives, they've heard the stories of creation, the fall, the enslavement in Egypt, the exodus out of Egypt. They've heard the stories of the conquest of the promised land and the countless ways God demonstrated his presence with them and his plan for them. And they are all well aware of how their ancestors stumbled around throughout their history and how they themselves tried and often failed to trust God and follow him. And so they have constantly turned away from God and back toward their own self-oriented impulses and cravings. These are the people of God, but they have constantly turned away from God and back toward their own self-oriented impulses and cravings. And whenever this has happened, the worship of God was relegated to the back burner. Self became more important than God until the heat got hot enough and then they repented and turned back toward him. And this goes on and on and on with, and don't miss this, the people of God, the people who know all the stories, the people who are there when the gatherings happen. Repentance was to be ongoing. We drive to San Francisco far too often than I wish we did. And it is not difficult to memorize the route from here to the city. It gets ingrained pretty fast. Highway 50 to Highway 80 over the Bay Bridge and turn right. That's the basic deal. But there's this thing called a Waze app I came upon some time ago. And supposedly it tells one the shortest and the quickest route to, for example, a place like San Francisco from Sacramento. So this thing about this Waze route, it always has a different idea. Always an unexpected twist in the directions. Take some exit just past Davis, wind around this country road, and then merge back onto the freeway and you will save 60 seconds. <laughs> Drive 20 miles in what feels like the wrong direction, Turn left, and it will eventually flow back into Highway 80. How? I have no idea, but you just bought yourself 10 more minutes. 
cut across the San Rafael Bridge instead of going over the Bay Bridge, come into the city through Highway 101 South. When we travel to San Francisco, I instinctively and without thinking about it, plan and expect to take Highway 50 to Highway 80 across the Bay Bridge and turn right. Highway 50 to Highway 80 across the Bay Bridge and turn right. Let's sing it. Hi- no, I'm kidding. But it's the default. It just is there. It's, I don't even think about it. But so often with this Waze app, there's a twist. And I fight the muscle memory of Highway 50 to Highway 80 to the Bay Bridge and turn right. I fight to believe the twists are true. I question them. I doubt them because I think I know best and the route is ingrained in my body. So I struggle to be open to a new way. However small the twist may be, the Christian life is about paying attention to the Spirit of God as He moves in our lives. It's about being open to Him in the details of our character and of our thoughts and actions and responses and reactions. The little twists we think insignificant are precisely where the Spirit wants to move. And repentance cannot happen if we are not open to what the Spirit is saying to us, we can't turn around if we aren't open to His vision of a new way of being. And I want to say this just as straight as I can. I think many Christians are closed to this vision and to this new way of being. This new way is in the details, in the new twist the new way of saying things. So it's in the details of words and reactions and responses and attitudes. And I think many Christians write those details off as insignificant or irrelevant or this is the most common. Well, that's just the way I am. See, we have ways of thinking, ways of relating to others, Ways of reacting when things don't go our way. Ways of responding. Ways of behaving. Ways of numbing the pain we experience in this life. Ways of finding temporary relief. Ways of nurturing our false selves. And all of these have been trained into our bodies through years and even decades of practice. They've become ingrained in our muscle memory, if you will. So these instinctual ways are the 50 to 80 across the Bay Bridge and turn right that is in us in whatever form. They have been our way of thinking or doing or numbing or reacting or relating for so long, we don't even realize they are misaligned with the kingdom of God. It never crosses our mind that these ways we think are just how we are, are really not what God intends for us. It doesn't occur to us that these automatic responses are not just part of our personality. They are actually manifestations of our false self. New and uncomfortable and risky situations have a stellar way of revealing our false self-tendencies that we have trained into the muscle memory of our bodies. 
Now, for me, I'm going to give you one of mine. I've trained this into myself for decades. It's competition. Now, I could give you far more and far darker, I assure you. But I'm going to just stick with one that doesn't make me feel so bad. Competition. Competition is part of my false self because I use competition to get value, and this value secures an identity for me, at least for 10 minutes. It's a false self because it is not my authentic self. Though I have been like this since I was a kid, and I could probably say, well, I'm just a competitive person. See, but competitive is not who I ultimately want to be, whether I know it or not. And competitive is not who I was created to be. And the identity competition secures for 10 minutes is not real and it is not lasting. It is a false self because it is a substitute for my true self and for the lasting identity I have because Jesus loves me, period. It is a false self. Why? Because it is a way that I can coerce value or applause or approval from you and from others instead of resting in who I am in Christ. And I want to say this again. In this distracted and chaotic world, it is much easier to be closed to the Spirit's activity in these kinds of details of our false selves. It is a lot easier to be closed to the idea that the Spirit might want to bring a twist to my competitive self. It's just easier to go, huh, I believe in God. I follow Him in other ways. That doesn't matter. I'll get to that later. It's just easier to be closed to the Spirit's activity than it is to be open to what He's saying and to what He wants to do. Fourth thing that comes to mind is this idea of veering off. It's a strange notion, and I'm only going to talk about it for a second. But one of the reasons we're closed to the Spirit's activity in us is because the whole project seems rather overwhelming, doesn't it? The magnitude of this idea of God doing something in us can be paralyzing because we go, well, there's so much God needs to do in me. At least this is how the thinking goes. So we don't know where to start. So we don't start. A common metaphor to illustrate the meaning of repentance is a U-turn. Another fun thing about driving in San Francisco. A U-turn. And that is a good picture of repentance. Makes sense. Repentance means turning around and going in the opposite direction. But this idea of a U-turn adds to the overwhelming size of the project. Going in the opposite direction? Are you kidding? That seems like a really big-time project. And here's the point. I'm not convinced repentance actually happens in such an all-or-nothing way because it seems to me, both biblically and experientially, that we usually turn slowly. We veer off ever so gradually We inch away from sin and self, and we inch toward God. 
So it's not so much a hard flip U-turn as a winding, more gradual series of turns away from sin and self and toward God. See, this is life under God. The unhurried and unforced adventure of increasingly aligning with his will and with his way in thought, in word, in deed, in attitude, in response, in reaction, veering off the road we are on and turning toward God, however, gradually and slowly. So let me ask you something. Can you think of a specific thought or response or action or reaction where the Spirit of God might be nudging you to something new. What twist is he up to in your heart and soul? What well-worn, well-practiced response, habit, action, reaction, attitude might the Spirit want to transform? What would veering off look like? What would a slow turn look like? Lastly, regarding repentance, celebrate boldly. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I love the end of this story. Celebrate boldly because God is on the move And we are gradually turning toward him. God's delight is our delight. And it is a delight to discover the way of truth. My question is, do you believe this? Does your prevailing image of God support the idea that his delight is your delight? That he delights in our repentance And in our discovery of his new way, he delights when we veer off ever so slightly and start to gradually turn. We recently got a little chihuahua wiener dog mix puppy. In the Greek, it's called a chihuini. His name is Rooster. He's a puppy. He's a puppy. Four months, chewing, biting, Barking, peeing, and all the rest that goes with it. Do not ask me why we have this new dog. But I want to give you, he's part of our family, I want to give you just a 10-second introduction to him. So take a look at the screen. More home video. There he is. Aww. I had just asked him, Rooster, what's the meaning of life? No. He's actually not real. He's a bobblehead. So you'll get one of him when you leave today. It's our gift. All the chaos we have of a new puppy. But here's the thing. He's slowly starting to learn. Underscore slowly. And again, the point. Julie and I celebrate what he's learning. And he's a dog. We celebrate his veering off. We celebrate his gradual turn. We don't focus on what he doesn't know or the mistakes he's made before or what he isn't doing or what we wish he was doing. 
Yeah, I do focus on what I wish he was doing, so this metaphor is disintegrating right in front of our eyes. But there is delight in the small steps this dog is making in the right direction. Good boy, rooster. Way to go, rooster. It's about time, rooster. No, we don't say that, but it just amazes me. It's a dog, and we celebrate his small turns. Does your God delight in the small steps you make toward him? Does he delight in that? Or does your God prefer keeping you gasping for breath in a sea of guilt over what you are not doing and for what you haven't learned and for how you are not what he wants you to be? God delights when we discover another piece of the journey. His delight is in our delight. When we veer off the road we are on and we slowly begin to turn back toward him and toward the way of his kingdom, our repentance is his joy. Our gradual turning is his joy. No shaming, no condemnation, no rubbing our noses in the messes we have previously made. So please find time this week to read Luke 15. Read Luke 15. If your God hammers people and rubs their noses in the guilt of their wrong, then Luke 15 will either bounce right off of you because you're closed, or it will challenge your perception of God. And it may be even reshape your perception of God because Luke 15 depicts a God who delights when broken people repent and celebration happens and joy overflows you see all of this traces back to the resurrection because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead as Paul says we are still in our sins and we're in deep weeds So this is a season to celebrate, even to celebrate through repentance. So one of the things we want to do is make sure, again, that we don't just talk, but that we actually do. So Manuel mentioned these bookmarks. And what the idea of these bookmarks are in your bulletin, the idea is that this is where the benediction begins. I've started the benediction. Because the benediction is where we are sent out to be the people of God. And this gives a lot of practical ways for you as an individual or better for you as a family or you with some friends to celebrate in this season of Eastertide. The other thing I wanted to mention is in the back of the room there is a table and in a moment there will be some people at that table and they are people who have decided they want to host a feast in their house And they're inviting you to join them for the feast. You don't have to know them. They won't know you either. The idea is 12 people. I think there's two different dinners that are going to be happening. The hosts of the dinners will be there. 12 spots in each one to go back there. And just as a practical way to say, I'm going to feast and celebrate with others in the community. We're going to get together and celebrate who God is. These dinners are happening. There's a couple of them that are available Uh, that you can sign up for this week. We'll have some the next couple of weeks as well. I would encourage you to stop by the table. It's a great way to get to know some other folks, and it's a great way to put into practice this idea of celebration. So before you leave...
there is food in the back table to hang around with. And as you leave, may the joy of our risen Savior be with you all. Thanks for coming.